Metricast. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westman demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Today we're talking a film from 1997 directed by David Fincher, The Game. This is like John Carpenter's The Fog and then it's nestled between two heavyweights. David Fincher's D- second directorial feature was Seven in 1995, and right after The Game, which he did next, he did Fight Club. Almost a cult film, uh, at least because of David Fincher, but this was one of the movies, along with The Edge, available now on orwhatevermovies.com, that I would recommend to people who said, so what's a good movie at Hollywood Video? Have you seen The Edge? <laughs> Have you seen The Game? This was a top of your recommended list. I think this is a satisfying, self-contained, late 90s Michael Douglas thriller movie. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that David Fincher did not nail, and that's the ending. Well, that was his problem. Why? What? What's your concern with the ending? Does he go to the airport with Christine, or does he not? I don't know. There was an alternate ending that might have satisfied you more, where he walks out of the hotel, and there's a cab there, and he just waves the cab away, doesn't want anything to do with it, and just walks off into the night. Suggesting what? That he's setting off on his new life, his new adventure? Yeah, maybe he's got his own feet under him and he's self-reliant and doesn't need the cab and is going to think about his life choices and stuff. (laughs) Was he not self-reliant? Is that what Nicholas Van Orton's problem was? He seemed like a pretty self-possessed dude, you know, doing normal rich dude business things. He was obviously disconnected from his feelings and as as illustrated in his birthday night conversation with his ex-wife but other than that did nicholas van orton really need a life adjustment um was this like babadook style where (laughs) (sighs) was this like babadook style where he was denying the trauma of his father's suicide i mean there was it was pretty dark and that was evident in sean penn's character connie but nick van orton was no edward lewis He was less satisfied. The money wasn't going to buy him happiness. He didn't seem friendly towards anyone, didn't have any human connections. The closest thing is maybe his brother, who he was contemptuous of, and Ilsa, his landlady. 
or his helper. Played by Carol Baker, his his longtime housekeeper. And it seemed like he still lived in a house or the house or a house that reminded him of his father's museum-like estate and all cold and alone and straight lines and muted grays and stuff. Oh, you mean as documented in the in the family archival footage of like little kids running around and being little kids, except that they're we- they're wearing like tailored suits and dresses <laughs> on this massive sprawling estate. It's like it's it was so Succession. When I watched the game, I was like, oh, that's where Succession got it from. This like eight millimeter kind of shuddery home video footage of the lifestyles of the rich and famous children. Yeah, but the Van Ortons had the very best of everything, including technology. Who would have allowed the processing or the storage of that eight millimeter footage to be done the way it was, all scratchy and stuff? It was pretty (laughs) degraded in quality. That was just some shoddy archive keeping. That's the best that it was at the time. And it had the kind of, um, you know, a mystique and some character to it. There's 110-year-old snowball fights on YouTube that don't look that bad. <laughs> well, it was, you know, it was a, done by a filmmaker for a certain effect. Yeah. Anyway, so you're saying he had a... Yeah, he had a troubled, scratchy childhood. And uh, he still bore those scars. And he was in his big, empty mansion of dull colors and no companionship. So you're saying, in short, that Nicholas Van Orton was in need of a life adjustment. Did he need such a kind of um, extreme version <laughs> of it? I think the movie was effective in suggesting that that was the only thing to break him out of this state. It was effective for the movie, and it's maybe the jolt he needed that almost killed him. It was like a forced heart attack or something to give him real perspective and have him go through a lot of pain to achieve. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't physically get hurt. Are you kidding me? Uh, He bangs his head in the car crash, maybe. (laughs) There were so many things that this is why this is a movie convention and a movie solution. Because to go through, jump through all these hoops to give him a profound life experience, there's just too many variables. It's impossible to control. Yeah, it's impossible to predict his behavior to the level they supposedly did. I mean, they suggested that CRS had contingency plans when Jim Feingold says at the end, you know, I'm glad you jumped because plan B was I had to throw you off. But there was no way that they could predict that. Yeah. I mean, the final scene in the, the crash bag or whatever you want to call it, the airbag. Yeah. There were I-beams within a few feet of him hitting that target. And there's no control thing. There's no like video game thing where there's boxes in the way so you can only jump off the roof at one particular point. He could have jumped off anywhere. And what's his name would have had to have grabbed him and been like, okay, over here, over here a little bit, go, and then pushed him off the roof. (laughs) A little bit of movie magic for him to land perfectly on the X. Right, on the X. And I get that they everything was carefully orchestrated, which is why it's a great movie convention. But when you're rewatching it and you know what the trick is, then you're trying to figure out, would this have been possible? Would those squibs on the car outside of Christine's house really have been as effective and convincing when you've got a team of people with automatic weapons shooting you? When he pulls the gun off of the private detective guy that's tailing him in the alley and he's like, oh, right, I suppose CRS would give you real bullets. And then, bam, he shoots the car tire. Were there real bullets in the gun or did they know he was unequivocally that he was going to shoot the car tire in that exact part? And not the poor, hapless detective actor dude. Right. Sure. There were divers in the water, but also that car went through that fence at a high clip and hit the water and he could have died on the impact alone. (laughs) 
<laughs> so are you saying that you were distracted by the CRS machinations so much so that you weren't really able to just go along for the thrill, no. the ride of it? It's why I like this movie is because you watch the movie and you're along for the ride. And you have the benefit as a viewer of this movie of not being a part, not being outside of Nick's character and that you don't know really anything that he does. You may glimpse some things over his shoulder in the background that, that are not his perspective. But really, we also don't know what's happening. And he's a clever, capable guy. Uh, you come to realize part of the facade, the multi-levels of facade, is that he thinks CRS is actually an entity trying to steal his money. And they play into that storyline when actually it's anything but. It's not just, oh, it's a game. It's they've been trying to con me the whole time. And we don't know. They set up so many layers of possibility that we're not sure which is the right one. Well, CRS cer certainly goes to great pains to demonstrate for him that it is a game. Or is that just for our benefit? Like, for example, when they go to the when they go to the emergency room in the ambulance with the guy who passes out on the street and then suddenly the whole hospital shuts down. Are they trying to suggest to him that it is a game or was that our, for our benefit to yeah. know that they are controlling large numbers of people, you know, massive sets and operations just to make this this uh, game feel real? Yeah, not quite gaslighting. <laughs> They're not convincing him it's real because there are definitely staged elements. There's no reason in reality why everyone should abandon the emergency room and that right, you know, all at the same time. Right. And likewise, when he goes to the hotel and encounters the orgy of evidence that he thinks Anson Bear placed, the guy's like, oh, welcome back. And he knows he wasn't there before. And he's like, don't I get a key? And he's like, didn't I give you one? And the key's in his pocket. And we just saw the dude bump his shoulder and say, pardon my mistake or whatever. Right. Right. So he knows that they're playing with him, which is a reminder that the game is still effect and it's very much a thing and it's being orchestrated so that he's not. I guess, A, going insane, or B, assuming that this is just a cut-and-run robbery kind of thing. It kind of keeps him, I think, from breaking the rules of the game and just stopping everything down. And for the game itself, the CRS game to exist, it's got to go all the way. Like, he can't deviate from the plan at all and just quit in the middle. He, they have to remind him that it's still going, because if he quits, then nothing is successful. Of course, we don't know that. Um, but I guess he doesn't really, he doesn't know what is game and what's not, what's con, what's not. And so at some point he's just trying to survive or trying to save his, his fortune, trying to be from, trying to keep from being swindled or in the case of when he visits Christine's apartment, trying not to die. Right. And on the periphery, he's still trying to make sure that Connie's okay. And Conrad is still on some level involved, or at least he says he is when he gets in the car and he's all paranoid. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking if you're going to be in a CRS game, who better to have as your brother than Sean Penn? Right. Who, you know, apparently Connie's a great actor and CRS could really lean on him to play that supporting role in Nicholas's game. Yep. Necessary. But they have to clearly establish that it's a game and have the components of a game because initially speaking, he has to submit to all of their tests and the physical and the psych profile and all the stuff that a normal rich dude in a post 9-11 world would never submit to in the age of identity theft and which actually is what is suggested is what's happening for him to give them biometric profile details. That would never happen today. You can tell when he's in Jim Feingold's office that he's like, all right, you know, he gives basically what is the first smile of his performance and he's going to play ball. 
all right, fine, let's do this. We're, you know, he gives in, gives in and over to it. He gets pretty annoyed that it takes hours upon hours. How long exactly did that take? It seemed like it took days. Yeah, what he said was, oh, I've had, I was fine spending all day with your crack team. So at least a number of hours. It seemed like it was dark outside and junk, but who knows? Because it was dark in CRS because it was dark in this movie. <laughs> Which is, you know, kind of David Fincher's M.O. It's the bleakest, darkest, ultra rich guy scenario since like the Green Knight. And Arthur's like in some dank chamber. Modern medieval king. Yep. Uh, can we talk a minute about the Jim Feingold VP of data or whatever? Yeah, the de facto antagonist of the movie, if the corporation has a face. Played by James Reborn. Yeah, he's the Reborn? man. Was the man. Yeah. Well, he had died a while ago. But this guy is like in everything. Is yeah. he like the preeminent character actor ever? Yeah, he was an actor within this movie on multiple levels. He was a CRS actor and in the commercial. Right. Do you think that that was really a a coincidence that he was an actor and his commercial showed up or was that part of the game? I don't know. That's what I spend most of the rewatches every time I watch this movie trying to figure out is how much was orchestrated and how much wasn't. You kind of have to consider that every single thing that tips him off, points him in one direction or another is orchestrated, premeditated. Planned. So there are the orchestrations that the movie sets in place, which Nick realizes the same time we do. And we're like, oh, he's an actor for him to echo it. But there was also the more subversive stuff that wasn't really clear. Like, obviously, the guy who has a heart attack outside when he follows Christine out of the restaurant when she gets fired. And then he's part of the act because everyone disappears. And we're not entirely sure that she's a part of the act, but the the dogs, that's a big variable, right? When the, the dogs that take his $1,000 shoe. Oh, right. I wonder if he gets uh, he gets reimbursed for that shoe, like in part of the, uh, the, the overall <laughs> price. So we'll deduct $1,000 for that shoe. But do you remember when they're in the elevator and the elevator breaks down and she refuses yeah. to go up and he's like, why? What's It's my way's easier. And she's like, I'm not wearing underwear. There, I said it. Okay, fine. But was there something that he had to kind of like figure out this part of the game himself and that he was supposed to go up first. There was all those weird moments in what in watching a second time around. You're like, I wonder if this is part of the machination, if this is orchestrated. And that kind of messes with you in a way. Well, you can just follow it through to its logical conclusion, right? He had to get up there because he had to leave his briefcase behind. Like, uh, yeah, I guess he would if he will. Yeah, I guess he would have he wouldn't have climbed up there with his briefcase. So there you go. It wasn't orchestrated for him to lose his briefcase, which he would then reacquire in the hotel room, all full of like uh, the orgy of evidence. I think, I mean, it seems like it was, it's a distracting enough piece of information that he would be like, fine, I'm going to go first. And maybe it would have been enough to distract him from his briefcase and to leave it there. And maybe her, part of her role is to enable him to be proactive in his own game. She can't let him defer to her on what the next action is to be because he needs to be responsible for the actions he takes. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. But the dogs were the, you know, canine security detail of the CRS security guards that were patrolling that area. Right. So the, the dogs were obviously in on it. And dogs are very smart and they could be trained just to sick shoes and not feet <laughs> or something. Chopper, sick shoes. <laughs> right? I mean, Chopper specifically was trained to sick balls and these could be <laughs> CRS sick shoes dogs. I mean, I give the I give the CRS team a lot of credit and you know, for the purposes of really enjoying this film, just bought into their all their omniscience and the the tests and the data they gleaned from their tests in order to create this very perfectly orchestrated, elaborate, very potentially dangerous game. There's got to be it's like an escape room, though, right? It has to be controlled in a sense. Or it's like the Truman Show where it's all orchestrated down to location and detail. And they're calling ahead on the walkies and they're like, hey, is the Mexican cemetery casket? Is that available yet? Like, did Bob leave that thing? Because we got Nick coming in a half an hour and we got to bury him in the Mexican cemetery. Like they have to have, they have to reuse these uh, these settings, right? No, they're custom. That's why they cost as much as they cost. That's why the Van Orton brothers raise their eyebrows at each other when they're signing the bill. It's not a good business model is what I'm saying. And do these businesses actually exist? I have no idea, having never been this rich. I've definitely heard of extreme vacations or like orchestrate your own kidnappings where like people will just like, bag you and throw you in a trunk and then drop you off in the middle of nowhere with the expectation that you're going to find your way back. Right. But that's when they pay the Mexican village to have that one tomb open with the the coffin all ready to go and with like hidden snacks and water if they pass out or something. Well, you know, I mean, you have no idea how much they spent on this. Yeah. But I mean, well, how, could it be five million dollars? It's, you know, probably there were probably 200 participants in the ballroom. There's no way any of that stuff is insurable. And if it does fail, if someone dies or if it goes critically wrong or if he doesn't have that psychological therapeutic turn where he lands on the air mattress, nobody gets paid. I mean, maybe it was that was it a joke when he said that it's totally contingent or it's totally uh, at your brother's discretion? Nobody gets paid if uh, without total satisfaction. Hmm. And that's what makes it a great movie. It, it, this can only be done in a movie. This movie was made to be a movie. Because they don't figure on podcasters being like, oh, it couldn't be done because of this. <laughs> well, this is also at the tail end of that period where people say, yeah, it's just a movie that kind of started with the Action Jacksons and ended at the, the end of the 90s. End of the 90s, which was the end, end of the analog age before everyone had cell phones. Before I understand what you're saying, but also it's like the dawn of the digital age where they have just enough to where they can put all this stuff in place without him having his like separate burner phone. And be like, I want out. And flying to Cabo until it all blows over. Uh, I'm sure CRS would just pivot and move the whole adventure to Cabo. I don't know, man. But that's like an, an additional. I mean, what was the waiver that uh, Con that Conrad had to sign? Because that has to cover all incidentals. And did he pay for it himself? Well, he said he would split it with him, which was very nice, considering he also had to. It probably saved him decades of therapy bills that he wouldn't have undertaken anyway, had it not been for this movie rejiggering his life. He, you know, would have lived a few more decades and would have been fine. This game rejiggering his life. What did I say? You said this movie. But uh, 
Also, it bears noting that Nick Van Orton, for all his wealth, is kind of older than you would expect. This movie opens on his 48th birthday. It's kind of unheard of. Like for a leading man to be pushing 50. And it's not unreasonable for, like if the game were to be remade today, it would be some like slick shit 20-something billionaire with slicked back <laughs> hair or whatever. But it would be some, like some young dude in, who is more in an action-y role. You know what I mean? The game, no, I don't know about that because the game is appropriate. It's like an appropriate midlife crisis event. You don't need the game until you're in your 40s and 50s. I don't think Hollywood cares about that at all. But I agree. And it's what makes this unique and I guess an adult, like a grown-up kind of movie. I mean, there are no kids in this movie. The closest we come is Conrad, and he's definitely in his 40s too. Yeah, Sean Penn. He's definitely a frenetic actor, probably well cast for the ne'er-do-well Conrad character. Like if Spicoli grew up and, and with money? I was going to say Kieran Culkin from Succession. Okay, keep plugging Succession. So, but it's weird that the game is just like a standby film for you. Like, you know it, you're ready to review it at a moment's notice. Like, for someone who would recommend it to all of their clients at Hollywood Video, you don't seem to like it that much. No, I do like the game. I'm saying in second viewing, it's kind of bleak and it's distasteful in some areas and kind of creepy. There's a scary clown in it and stuff. <laughs> It's because David Fincher movies aren't particularly happy and shiny. You know, you watch it for. What are you talking about? For its blue, what? Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is like one of my favorite films yeah, ever. Yeah, Mank was all like psychologically centered and everybody was stable and happy. Uh, David Fincher <laughs> movies are definitely bleak. They're fun to watch because of the intrigue of this movie. It's one of my favorite rewatches because of how much the first one takes you for a ride and, and how much is left, how much analysis is left for rewatching. I mean, what better movie to rewatch and pick up on the clues? Did you know that Christine is a waitress in the restaurant where Conrad originally gives Nikki the card, the CRS card? Yeah, well, it's the same restaurant where he's supposed to meet Conrad for dinner. The point is CRS was already in effect and orchestrating things at the point that Conrad gave the card, which is curious. I mean, I, I enjoy movies that bear rewatching, and this is a satisfying one to rewatch. I think it's not coincidence that you would recommend The Game and The Edge in your Hollywood video days, because aren't they both just rise to the occasion films? Just like people in, well, rich dudes in particular. In extreme situations. Transcending their the limitations that their money placed them in. I mean, I don't know that either of them were particularly limited by their money, but they don't have the, the they don't have the same kind of everyman struggles of needing to use street smarts or savvy to get out of a sticky situation. Like, they're given the opportunity to rise to the occasion. Maybe there's something in that for you. You have some kind of fantastical, like, if given the right opportunity, you know that you'd rise to the occasion kind of a complex? <laughs> I imagine my game would have been way different, where I would have, like, stopped and sat in the back of an ambulance until someone came, like, a cop came forward to, like, make me move out of there, like... I would have been like, I'm not playing your rat in a maze game. I don't need the cheese. I'll just sit here and wait and see what happens. Or I'd try to mess with their system. I think that what Nick had working against him was that he had appearances to keep up and a reputation to maintain. And when the game started threatening those things, he had no choice but to act. So, so he goes in and he cleans up the hotel suite and, you know, he doesn't know for sure who's in or who's not in. And he has to maintain his appearances for those who are presumably not in the game. Yep. 
And also he's so accustomed to people doing things for him with his little hamburger and his cupcake and having his assistant book stuff that in that way he's it's more easy to manipulate him because he doesn't really have a lot of control over his own life. He relies on a lot of people to do a lot of different things, which I guess in the alternate ending is why he waved away the taxi. I think what I'm getting at is there is something missing in the game. The game itself is fairly distracting, but that's fine. It's more the, What's missing is what is Nicholas's motivation? I think that's also what I was getting at when I'm talking about reputation and appearances and, well, obviously he wants to keep his money and he wants to live. Like, is the game basically just a really elaborate version of Melissa McCarthy, like taking your hands and then hitting you with them and being like, (laughs) I want you to fight for your sorry little life. Bridesmaids reference. Did I quote it correctly? Yeah. But this, yeah, this is a maze that he's being forced to move along in the guy under the guise of progress, I guess. The problem with it is that Nicholas Van Orton is severely traumatized. Unless CRS was back in the day manufacturing his dad's suicide, like he has a lot of real issues that he can avoid forever because of how much money he has. Damn. They go for the jugular when they start with the clown in the circular driveway. They're not messing around. Right. And so they're they're riding this line of trauma and therapy, I guess, because ultimately he was meant to address his trauma in a way that he couldn't hide from it and accept his fate. And having gone through the motions of following in his father's footsteps off the ledge of the roof or whatever, then everything that he has pent up is released and he can discover who he is. But they had to attack all the facets of his life. He had to know that his money wasn't secure, that his house wasn't secure. They violated that, that his family, the few people that he felt he could trust, his ex-wife and his brother included, his housekeeper weren't secure. Uh, You know, that his business, he wasn't running it the way that he was confidently doing before. And maybe Anson Bear was involved and got his brother involved and all this stuff. Just psychologically breaking him down to barest essence. Uh, Where before I was blind, now I can see. And that's really all it did. It just, the twists were utilizing his fears and his concerns of inadequacy and things and making the game seem like more than it was, making it seem like a shakedown or an elaborate robbery, when in fact it was just a tailor-made game. Right. It's a artificial, manufactured rock bottom for people to experience when they don't otherwise have the emotional wherewithal or the social support structure. I'm telling you, dude, in the remake, the rich guy is going to descend into madness. And, you know, when he really jumps to his death in his final moments before death, he will imagine that it was all actually part of the game, but it wasn't. That's what it's going to be. He's not actually going to survive. He's going to jump off the roof. But in his last moments of reconciliation, his brain is going to tell him this is all still part of the game as he descends into madness. And ultimately to his death. Yeah. I was thinking the game remake would be like a, a total AR VR experience where you don't realize, you don't know if you're in the real world or not. I think that's called the Matrix. Yeah, except, you know, manufactured in for recreational purposes. Right. Or what else recently was like that where you don't know if it's real or not? Vanilla Sky? Yeah, that's a good that's a good one. Or Inception? Yeah. So last question, what was the worst decision that he made in the game? I think it was continuing to pursue the red flaggiest chick ever like within the game (laughs) 
being Christine. Yeah, but that's part of the effectiveness of this movie and that it builds it up so much that you're not really sure who to trust. Worst decision for me, and this is tantamount to jumping through awnings and um, trees and stuff, is don't jump into the dumpster and expect that it's going to break your fall in like an effective way. I feel like this movie is meta in a couple of different ways. Because number one, that was the most dangerous stunt in the movie and Deborah Carr Unger broke her foot jumping into what <laughs> is suggested was a real dumpster full of rats. I don't know how true that is, but yeah, maybe don't jump into dumpsters, but that was, I mean, there was nobody, no safety team there positioning it under her. Right. It had to be perfect. You have to hang at this part and then drop. And hopefully you'll be OK, because there's we've got a long day ahead of us in the shooting schedule and you can't break your leg. You have to hop out and follow him. Did she really break her foot? In real life, she fractured her foot jumping into a dumpster. <gasps> oh, my God. That's so dangerous. <laughs> and they jumped so hastily in the story. It's like, oh, the ladder fell into the alley. Let's just throw our like hurl ourselves off of the fire escape. Right into random ass dumpsters and it worked. like i throw away crazy stuff like you don't want to jump into my trash it's a really bad idea don't you like put the caps back on all those needles and stuff <laughs> they i'm just and and of course this is saying. all for rewatching. this is why it's a movie and in the movie version it can't be a carefully controlled jump because we don't know that that jump is manufactured we don't know that uh, that it's not crs orchestrated so the game, one of Brian's favorite movies, prompted by him to rewatch, a very fun ride. Maybe it's unsatisfying, like a movie where at the end the main character wakes up and it's all a dream. But ultimately, a very fun ride. And I give the game from 1997, available now on Netflix, a good. I would have done things differently, but that doesn't mean that, as you suggested, it wasn't a super fun ride from the outset. I'm going to give this a pretty low end, but still a, a real totally kind of vibe. The game what? exists in a really good place for me, and I've seen it a lot of times. It's a totally movie, a life experience, not so much, but this movie really captures your attention and it fuels your paranoia and your this is like a popcorn kind of yelling at the screen totally kind of thing that I really appreciate. What I'm interested in at this point is how meta this discussion became because you're definitely surprised because I seem to trash it. And that's part of what I love about movies. I love that I was that I feel a little bit sick after I watch this movie because it's so tense. It flirted with the list of all time most heart pounding movies. And you realize how much, how important things like your home and your stability and your wealth are to your psychological well-being. Because when all that gets stripped away, you lose a sense of who you are and any sense of foundation. And it's really like literally unsettling. And I spent a lot of time kind of picking at this movie which I do to some of my favorite movies because of how much I like them. And and thus, because I love it, I don't... It's like a sibling. You kind of pick it apart and pick on it, even though you love it. I have so much sympathy for any sibling that you might be referring yeah. to. So a surprising totally from Wes, a good from Iris. That's our review on David Fincher's The Game. Check out our other David Fincher reviews available on orwhatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for listening. 818-834-8765. <laughs> That's how you get in touch with us. Or whoever picks up the phone if you dial that number. <laughs>
818-835-0473. That's what I meant. Or whatever movies at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, what's happening out there, everybody? This is Lawrence Ross, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Lawrence Ross Show. Egomaniac. It's a two-hour weekly exploration into my mind. I also do sketches, celebrity impersonations. You're out of order! And I also do song parodies. Not too shabby for a blind guy. Not only are you visually impaired, but you are geographically impaired. New episodes are released every Friday. Check it out on your favorite podcasting platform or listen to it here on Society 13 on Electrocast. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid. Electric acid.